All right, well, let's begin our time together with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this time that we can again turn to consider what your word has to teach your people. Pray that we would be led by your spirit into truth. We thank you for the clarity of his revelation to us in your word and what we can glean from it. So we pray you would help to guide us so that we might be led into all truth. Help us to glorify you as you deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be looking at the second head of doctrine um, on uh, what we usually call the third point of Calvinism, um, which is which is the L of tulip. So what does the L of tulip stand for? Okay, limited atonement. And what is the opposite of a limited atonement? Unlimited. Very good. You're on your game this morning. Um, Yeah, that was sort of what Arminians taught, um, an unlimited atonement that Christ died for all. They did not mean by that that all were saved necessarily, but that Christ died for all. Um, You sometimes meet people who will say, I'm a four-point Calvinist. Have you ever met someone who's a four-point Calvinist? Um, And this is usually the point that they're opting out of. Um, This is the point that they usually don't like. Um, And in part because the word limited is not really the most helpful word always to start with. Um, It helps you to spell tulip. um, And it it is strictly speaking correct. um, But it maybe is not the best way to talk about the atonement. Um, some, Some people prefer to use the word definite instead of limited to talk about a definite atonement. Um, And we'll talk about why that is as we go on. Um, Some people like to talk about a particular redemption. Um, And I think that could be helpful as well to, to change. But I always find if someone has a real problem with the words limited atonement, I'm not gonna die on the hill of defending these words. I'd rather take them to this doctrine another way. Um, and sometimes the way I, I've heard it done that I really like is to talk about redemption accomplished. They're all getting at the same fundamental question which is what did Jesus do on the cross? When Jesus died for the world, when Jesus died for sinners, um, what, what did he accomplish by his death? Did he make salvation possible? Um, or did he save people in his dying? And that's what we get at when we're talking about a definite or a particular redemption. Did Jesus die for a particular people that he saved in his dying? Or did he sort of die to make salvation possible for all who would believe? And so in that sense, he died for all. Um, How do we understand what was actually accomplished on the cross of Christ? How do we rightly state that? And like I said, Arminians would argue that Christ died for all. They don't mean by that that all people were saved by his death, um, but that Jesus died for all people. Um, that he made salvation possible for all. 
Um, but your salvation is secured when you put your faith in him. Um, so in a, in a profound sense, Calvinists responded to that by saying, if he just made salvation possible, then he didn't actually die for anyone. He just died to make salvation possible, but he didn't particularly redeem anybody by his death. He just died to make it a possibility. Um, it also is sort of problematic to say that Jesus died for all and then to somehow say, but not all are saved because it sort of begs the question. So you're saying that Jesus died for some who are not saved. Um, how does that work? How do we see that working out? Um, as the Bible describes it, can that be possible? Um, does Jesus die to remove obstacles to salvation or does he save um, in his dying? And that's where some people um, have trouble. The Arminians were taking a particular tack on this. And so everybody who says they're a four-point Calvinist, I don't think we should regard them as revealing themselves to be vile Arminians. Um, probably shouldn't talk about vile Arminians in the first place. Um, we should probably avoid that too. But you know, sometimes if you meet someone who's a four-point Calvinist, you can't automatically assume that they're somehow crypto-Arminians. Sometimes what they just have a trouble with is, is the limiting nature of it. Doesn't Jesus die for all? Don't we hear that he's a propitiation for the whole world? Um, he's a savior of the whole world. How do, how do we understand those texts in light of what the Bible teaches about the death of Christ when Jesus says, I came to give myself as a ransom for many? Um, how do we understand these verses amongst one another? So that's our subject as we go on. So um, there can be very, very good Christian brothers and sisters who are four-point Calvinists. Um, and even though you would regard them as a, as a brother or sister in Christ, they'd still be wrong on this point. Um, and Calvinism as a system doesn't hold together very well if you deny limited atonement. Um, you know, we tend to joke you can be a zero-point Calvinist or you can be a five-point Calvinist. You can't really be anything less than five without really having to throw out the whole thing um, because they all depend on one another. Um, so we're going to talk about some of these things. I'm just trying to introduce kind of some of the subject um, because the Calvinist response and the purpose of limited atonement is to say Christ came into the world and by his cross, he actually saved sinners. He came to actually save sinners by his death and he has actually saved all those for whom he died um, or will save them when they are born into the world and, and will become believers. But he does save people by his death. He does actually save, and he actually saves all those he came to save. Um, a definite number known to him, given him by the Father, who he came particularly to redeem. That's what we mean by those things. So we'll go on when we talk about these things. So the second main head of doctrine is where we want to start, second point of doctrine. Um, and that's on, if you're using the Forms and Prayers book, you'll find that on page 267. If you're using the hymnal, it's in the back on page 903. And if you've got that little paperback book, it's on page 155, the second main head of doctrine of the Kansador. And they deal, this deals with limited atonement or particular, particular redemption. And as all of, the, all of the canons start, they start with generally accepted Christian teaching, a Catholic small c, universally accepted biblical truths at the time the canons were written. So these are not meant to be controversial. These are things that everybody would have agreed on, whether you were a Roman Catholic, um, any Christian. Okay, so Article 1 says, God is not only supremely merciful, 
but also supremely just. His justice requires, as he has revealed himself in the word, that the sins we have committed against his infinite majesty be punished with both temporal and eternal punishments of soul as well as body. We cannot escape these punishments unless satisfaction is given to God's justice. Um, God's justice must be satisfied. Um, The penalty that sin has incurred must be paid. Um, And maybe you hear, if you know your catechism well, you you might hear in that main point of doctrine echoes of question 11 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It says much the same thing in its answer. When it says, you know, I know God is just, but isn't God also merciful? Can I, can I just sort of hope in his mercy? And the, the catechism in question 11 says, yeah, God is merciful, but he's also just. And his justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty. Eternal punishment of body and soul. Um, we're meant to see this in terms of, as we talked about before, criminal justice, right? There, there's a penalty for crimes committed. We understand that. We understand there are certain crimes in our own criminal procedure that carry with them what we call the death penalty. That's the penalty that that crime, that sin, deserves, right? And what, when we come to the scriptures, when we come to sin, what we're recognizing is Scriptures tell us that sin is an extreme crime. Right, we talked about that earlier. It's not just a crime against humanity, like the Nazis were accused of. This is a crime against deity. Right, it's far worse. Crimes against divinity are far worse. And just as crimes against humanity, the ultimate penalty that can be meted out is the death penalty, the ultimate crime against divinity, an eternal crime, is an eternal punishment, an eternal penalty. Um, and that is the death of body and soul in hell. Um, hell is the penalty, the right punishment of sin. Um, hell is not undeserved or somehow mean or arbitrary or over the top. It's the punishment that sin deserves. We already talked about this. Um, and and that, that has to be paid to satisfy the justice of God. Right? It would be an injustice if a crime is not met by a penalty, It would be an injustice if God did not meet the crimes that were committed against his majesty with the appropriate penalty. God is just. And part of his justice, clear from the beginning, is if you you disobey my word, the day you do that, you will surely die. That was the clearly stated penalty in the garden for unbelief, for disobedience. Is that the day they did what God had commanded them not to do, they would surely die. The wages of sin is death. Um, that's clearly understood. Uh, God is a God who is just and must punish sin. Right? That's, that's how he reveals himself in his glory. Not just as a forgiving God, but as a just God. When Moses sees the glory of the Lord and God proclaims his glory to Moses, what does, what does the Lord say? The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Unless someone were to say, well, that's the Old Testament God. He's a kinder, gentler God in the New Testament. 
Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap life. God is just, his justice must be satisfied. He will by no means clear the guilty. Um, and so that's, that's a universal truth. And so we can't provide that satisfaction. We can't, we can't pay that penalty, right, without being destroyed because we can't pay an eternal penalty um, but except by suffering it for an eternity in hell. And so the question is, if, if God's justice has to be paid and we can't pay it, how do we escape it? That's the fundamental question that needs, everyone needs to be able to answer because we all stand condemned underneath God's tribunal. God's justice has to be done. And where do we find hope if we know that we stand condemned at his tribunal? Um, well, the hope comes in the satisfaction that Christ made, and that's what's spoken about in Article 2. Since, however, we ourselves cannot give this satisfaction or deliver ourselves from God's anger, God in his boundless mercy has given us as a guarantee his only begotten son, um, who was made to be sin and a curse for us in our place on the cross in order that he might give satisfaction for us. Um, so we had incurred this penalty that we can't pay. And so God, not owing that to us, but out of the, the abundance of his grace, out of his boundless mercy, as the canon puts it, sent his son who was willing to come and to make satisfaction for us. Um, and so what we always have to remind ourselves is God's mercy does not mean his justice is not done. That's the whole point of question 11 of the catechism. You can't just say, well, God will overwhelm his justice with his mercy. No, what we read is God is just and he's merciful. He has to be both. He has to be all. That's how he's revealed himself in his word. But the way he's found to be both just and merciful is to send us a substitute. Someone who could make satisfaction for us, who could stand in our place. Um, the, the fancy way of talking about this is sometimes people call this the vicarious atonement or the substitutionary view of the atonement. And all that, all that means is to say that Jesus becomes our substitute. He stands in our place um, at the judgment seat of God. Um, just the way sometimes people talk about the vicarious atonement, we'll sometimes talk about living vicariously through someone else. Right, if you, you watch a show about million-dollar homes on the beach and you realize, I'm never going to have a million-dollar home on the beach. I'm just living vicariously through the people who can have them. Right? You're, you're, you understand that, that vicariousness, right? And that's what we mean if someone talks about the vicarious nature of the atonement. Jesus stood in as our substitute. He became sin for us to switch places with us so that he could receive our justice, pay the debt that we owed, um, and give us what it was his. Um, and that's what's clearly taught in the scripture. The, the, the Canons of Dorton, Article 2, are just quoting, or essentially making allusion to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
verses 18 through 21, where we read, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great substitution. That's the great exchange, we sometimes say. Right? He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. He pays the penalty for our sin. He takes the wrath of God on himself and he gives us his righteousness in order that we can stand. And that's what's so wonderful about the way God has worked mercy by the cross is that he has managed by the cross to solve that dilemma. How does God be both just and merciful? How can God show mercy to sinners who deserve his justice? How can he be merciful without his justice suffering? Um, And he does it by the plan of the cross that is willingly taken upon himself by the Lord Jesus Christ. He willingly comes in to complete this transaction. He is willing to come and suffer our penalty in our place that we might be saved, that we might escape it. Um, He comes willingly to sacrifice himself for his people. That's how justice is met and that's also how mercy is shown. Jesus meets the justice and gets the mercy for his people. Um, And so God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful in all that he does. Um, And he does that by way of the cross. That's why we remind ourselves every time we hear the absolution or the declaration of pardon in the worship service, we quote 1 John 1. It's not because we're not imaginative. We are, as Reformed pastors, we often are not very imaginative. But the reason we, we, we want that verse repeated in the ears of God's people is to remind ourselves that if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins because he's being both just and merciful. Right, that, that passage, there's not a lot of passages that, that contain all of that truth. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I don't have to worry about another justice being paid out on me because it's already been paid out on Christ. He has turned away the wrath of God from me. Right, that's what we celebrate in 1 John 2, Verse two, he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is that atoning sacrifice that turns away sin, right? He's the propitiation. He's the one who turns it away. Um, Now you'll say, I heard you say the sins of the whole world. I'm aware of that as a Calvinist. I'm aware that passage says that. I have an answer for that. We'll get there. I want you to come back so you can't give everybody everything all at once. You have to leave them a little tension. But there's no problem as a Calvinist with recognizing that, that he says that. Um, Jesus said in John 4, 42, they said to the woman, it's no longer because of um, what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know this is indeed the savior of the world. Right, that, the woman at the well, the, the people, we've heard he's the savior of the world. 
We don't shrink away from those things. We have, we have explanations for what is meant there. We don't shrink away from that. But the, the fundamental force of this is Jesus comes as a substitute. And isn't that what the whole Old Testament was teaching God's people? That there, there's a sacrifice for sin. There's a sacrifice for sin. And what does that sacrifice involve? It involves someone else, something else, suffering in your place. Right, that was what the great day of atonement sacrifice did. You would bring the goat and you'd pronounce the sins of the people over the head of that goat, right? And then one would be released, but one would be sacrificed and it would be slaughtered and it would be put on the altar and burned. Uh, whole burnt offerings we sometimes call, they're Holocaust offerings. The whole thing is destroyed in the offering. And, and what was that a vivid picture of for God's people, Right? Sin requires a shedding of blood. Sin requires death. That's always been the way things have been. All the way back to the garden, what was required for Adam and Eve to be clothed initially? It was the death of those first animals whose skins were made by God to be clothing for them. There was already a sacrifice way back then, but it was repeated over and over again. And it was always a substitute is dying for me. I always said in Torrance, that, that's why I'm so happy to be a pastor, not a priest. There's a lot of blood and death and gore in the old covenant. That, that's, that's a terrible ministry. Um, and if you think sermons are long and boring, or if you kids think it's hard to listen to me pray for a long time in the congregational prayer, just be glad you're not saying, you know, now let's bow our heads and go to the slaughtering of the animal portion of the, of the morning. You know, that would, be, that would be a brutal thing for kids to have to watch. But what was all of that doing repeatedly telling God's people? Sin is a serious business and it requires a serious punishment. God is not joking around with the death and the blood and the offering and the altar fire. And what was all of that telling them all throughout the Old Testament? This never goes out, right? If you were encamped around the tabernacle, you always saw smoke rising from the middle of the court. And even if you didn't know what that smoke, where that smoke was coming from, if your kids had asked you, Dad, where is that smoke coming from? Grandpa, Grandma, what is that smoke that we see from the tabernacle? They would say, that's the fire of the altar that's always burning. That's the fire of the altar that's always burning. What was the message that was constantly sending to God's people? The fire of the altar is not put out. And all that blood and all that death that's been going on to that altar that's teaching us about substitutes for sin, the sin requires death, sin requires sacrifice. What is it also teaching us? That fire's never going out. None of these are substitutes that can actually pay the penalty. And that's what the author of Hebrews does when he comes. He says, gloriously, look, we've been living with substitutes all our lives. We've been watching that all our lives. And it was preparing us for the real thing. It was preparing us for this altar and this sacrifice where someone would come and lay down the sacrifice that actually substitutes and takes the sin away. An altar that will put an end to sacrifice and bloodshedding. Why? Because now a life will have been offered that can actually make payment, that actually satisfies the wrath of God and you can close up the temple and pack it all up and take it away because you don't need it anymore. That, that's why it's very sad that our dispensational friends want to restart temples 
and restart sacrifices and rebuild these things because the whole point of these things was to point to Jesus. Once you get them, once you get this, you don't need that anymore. That's what that was all pointing towards. And that's the whole point of the author of Hebrews. Why would you go back to all that stuff that never put the fire out, that never stopped the bloodshed? Because now the sacrifice has come, the death that takes away sin, that pays the penalty, that satisfies the wrath of God, puts the altar fire out, closes the whole thing up and says, it is finished. That's what Jesus meant when he said it is finished. The whole Old Testament is finished. It's fulfilled in what I do right now. That sacrifice takes away our sin. Now, why is this important? Not to quibble over theological terms. It's so that you know, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, your hell has already been paid by him. The hell you deserve has already been suffered by him. And that's when God's justice becomes very good news if you've had a substitute who's died in your place. Because if Jesus has paid your penalty, that means there's no penalty left to be paid. If Jesus has paid for your hell, that means there's no hell for you to pay for. That's what it means to say there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because, you know, when the devil comes and says, you deserve hell, you, you say, yeah, I do. I do deserve hell. And I'd have been going there if not for what Jesus did for me on the cross. But there he paid my hell. And there's no hell left for me to pay. Because it's been paid by him. That's what it means, that substitutionary atonement. He willingly took on himself my sin. He who knew no sin became sin for me, became sin for you, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that death is effective for all those for whom he died. When he came into the world, he knew those for whom he was giving his life. Um, he died on the cross with you in mind to make satisfaction for sin. So yeah, it's, a terrible, it's terrible news that God's justice requires satisfaction. It's terrible news to people who can't satisfy it themselves. The good news comes when we're reminded that satisfaction has been made by Christ that he came to lay down his life for sinners. Um, that he's received the punishment due to us, that means there's no punishment left for us. Because he has met the eternal penalty by the infinite value of his life. That's sometimes what people have wrestled with is, you know, I need a substitute who can pay an eternal penalty. And what, what kind of person can pay an eternal penalty? Well, he can't pay an eternal penalty unless he's human because it's human beings that owed the penalty. That was part of what the sacrificial system was reminding them of. An animal can't die for you. Not in a way that puts away the wrath of God entirely. So he has to be a human. He also has to be righteous. Because what did the sacrificial system also show God's people? You can't bring me crippled animals. You can't bring me stained animals or blemished animals. They have to be perfect. They have to be whole. Um, and what was that teaching them? Animals have to be whole. There has to be a perfect sacrifice. 
Not any old sacrifice will do. It has to be a sacrifice of a certain kind. And that's what we're being taught in scripture. He has to be truly human. He has to be truly righteous. But who of, who, which human being could suffer under that kind of wrath and endure? Right? Who could overcome the wrath of God? Only one who is also himself divine. Uh, again, the catechism is, is beautifully helpful on this by saying it was only by the power of his divinity that he could bear in his humanity the wrath of God against sin. Who could survive that when the true wrath of God is poured out on sinners? It's worse than the bronze altar fire in the courtyard. The fire of God's anger is far worse. Who could, who could endure that? The prophets ask, like, who can endure the day of his coming? Um, only someone who's truly human and truly righteous and also truly divine, truly God. That limits the pool of people down to one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can come and do that. And he meets the eternal penalty that canons adore wonderfully say by the, value of an inf- by the infinite value of his life. That's what the, the third article makes so, so wonderfully clear. This death of God's son as the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins, it is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. This is such a precious truth that we need to be reminded of when we are particularly mindful of how bad our sins are. Um, and how much we deserve the wrath of God. Um, how much we are, are suffering to think, can God really love someone like me? Um, and if you've not ever felt that way, you'll meet people who feel that way. That if you share the gospel with them, they will say to you, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. And if you knew, you would never say to me, this is for you too. Um, and you're always able to respond to that person and say, I don't know you, but the God who made heavens and the earth knows you, and he says to you, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I don't know you, he knows you, and he's the one inviting you. He's the one calling you. He's the one who says, this is for you. And how do I know that that's sufficient? Because the value of the life of Christ is sufficient for anything you've done wrong. His holiness is sufficient to overcome your uncleanness, no matter how bad it is. Um, you know, that, that was powerfully pictured to us in the Gospels when the woman who is unclean touches Jesus' robe and she becomes clean. Right? That, that was never the way things worked in the Old Testament system. In the Old Testament system, if you touched something that was unclean and you were clean, you became unclean. Right? In the Old Testament system, what would have happened if she touched Jesus, she'd have made Jesus unclean because she was unclean. And so what, what happens is... That, that parable doesn't strike us the way it would have struck the ear of an Old Testament person to recognize that when the unclean person reaches out and touches Jesus, he does not absorb her uncleanness. She absorbs his holiness. And he's able to turn around and say, who touched me? And the disciples say, well, you know, everybody's touching you, Jesus. What do you mean? There's a huge crowd of people. Everybody's touching you. And he, and he's, he's, he draws that out, right? To bring to the fore what has happened there. 
Here is a new kind of holiness that the world has never seen, where when it touches, it makes clean. It can't be fouled by uncleanness. It actually makes the unclean clean. This is the power of the life of Christ. This is the infinite value of the life that's laid down for sinners. He doesn't just take our sin on himself. He dies as the eternal son of God come in the flesh. There's a value to that life that cannot be overestimated. It's of infinite value. Um, You you learn that pretty quick as a kid, right? That infinite is the highest way you can go. My bike is better than yours. My bike is 10 times better than yours. My bike is 100 times better than yours. You go back and forth until someone says, my bike is infinity times 1,000, you know, infinity times this. You learn real quick as a kid, you can't go higher than infinity. When someone goes, my bike is infinity times better than yours, they've won. And and the minute someone goes, well, my bike's infinity times 1,000, you go, no, you can't do that. Infinity goes as high as it can go. Now, I'm sure there's some theoretical mathematician here who can explain how infinity is not the highest. I'm talking about street rules, (laughs) right? Respect the game, okay? Um, Infinity is the highest you can go, right? And so that is what the canons of Dora are saying here. There is not a more perfect sacrifice than can be offered. There is not a more valuable life than the life that was laid down on the cross. And that life is of such a value, it can extinguish anything else that's offered against it. That is a light that will outshine any darkness. That is a cleanness that will outcleanse any dirtiness. That is a goodness that will wipe away any evil. Right? You can't have evil come into contact with Christ and survive. That's what the canons of Dora is saying about the life of Christ. This death of God's son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. His life is sufficient to wipe out everything else. If you multiply the number of the elect that are elect of God by 10, he could meet that. He could meet however many worlds of sinners you wanted to match against his life. It's of such an infinite value that it's sufficient to atone for the sins of anybody and any number of people you would match against that life. Such is the value of our Savior. Again, that is not just theological, theoretical, you know, eyes roll back in your head with boredom on a Sunday afternoon stuff. This is incredibly important stuff that however much you have been evil in your life, the goodness of the son of God is sufficient to purge it completely. In fact, it's not a contest. When someone says, oh, you don't know how evil I've been. We can say, you don't know how great Christ is. If you think he cannot deal with that. His death is sufficient. And why do we confess that his, his death is of, his life is of such worth? Well, we see that in Article 4. This death is of such great value and worth for the reason that the person who suffered it, as was necessary to be our Savior, not only a truly and perfectly holy man, but also the only begotten Son of God, of the same eternal and infinite essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit, Another reason is that his death was accompanied by the experience of God's anger and curse, which we by our sins had fully deserved. It was not just the value of the life, but the 
the, the extent of what he suffered. Um, can you suffer more than the Lord suffered on the cross? Could the suffering be greater than to suffer the eternal wrath of God against sin? Uh, the answer is no. I mean, there, there's, there's no worse suffering than Christ suffered. There's nothing worse that there is than bearing the eternal wrath of God against sin. The Kansas are saying it's of infinite value, not just because of the value of the one who laid down his life, but the extent of what he suffered. That life of infinite value suffered that eternal penalty. There's nothing more than that. He can't do more than he's done. Um, and he did all that's necessary for his people. Um, and that's why we can preach the good news with such confidence to whatever sinner we come into contact with. That nobody can say, yeah, but my sin is such that I can't be saved. So no, you can't match your evil against the goodness of God and have your evil prevail. That light shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Right? Even death couldn't take Jesus. Even that had to come for him when he told it to. You know, that, that's the message of the cross, that he has authority over his life to lay it down. He laid it down when he was finished. When he had satisfied the wrath of God, he then said to death, now you may proceed. But until he said that, death was powerless against him. That's why every gospel writer recording the death of Christ uses a different way of saying he died than the usual way of saying he died. He breathed his last. He gave up his spirit. You know, it's because he doesn't die like anyone else dies because death works for him. It can't overcome him. He, he submits himself to it when he pleases, when he's finished his work. Um, he said, now I'm finished. Now I'm committing my spirit to the Father. Now I can go. Because it's done. Um, that's a different kind of life. That's a different kind of death. And it's the kind of death that will cover your sins and the sins of the whole world. That's what we mean when we say it's, it's sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. You can take the sins of this world. You can take the sins of 10,000 worlds like this world. You can match it all against his life. And it would still be enough to extinguish all of that guilt still be enough to put it out. We need to understand the magnitude of the scope, not just to glorify the Savior, but so that you can be assured as a sinner like me that we can fit within that scope and find wholeness. That he's a Savior for us. And that if the wrath of God has been paid out in him on the cross for me, then there's nothing more for me to fear. There's no more justice yet to be meted out. The justice has already been done. Um, he's exchanged our corruption for his holiness. Now we won't receive what our, our sins deserve. We will receive by God's grace what his righteousness deserves. So if you think about it, it's hard to figure out what the value of Christ's life is. Um, try to figure out sometime what does the reward do his name. And the glorious message of Scripture is the reward that's due his name for what he's done, that's going to be yours one day because that's the trade he's made. He took on himself what we are 
so that we could have what he is in terms of righteousness and in terms of an inheritance. That's why we have to say about that inheritance, um, it's better than you can imagine. Um, it's better beyond what you're capable of imagining, um, which I always as a kid thought, but I can imagine a lot. Does that mean it's more than that? Yeah, but what if I go beyond that? Still more than that? Yep. You can't get there because it's the only way to kind of try to send the message of how big it is. It's, it's an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison that you can't even compare to the negative because it's not fair to the positive. Um, and so that's what we are continually trying to wrestle with in the Christian life is to really believe what the gospel says is true. That he became sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. That there is no penalty waiting for us out there because it's already been paid by the cross of Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, we struggle to really believe it. Um, and even when we say we believe it, we struggle to live it out in practical life. As if I'm beyond condemnation because of what my Lord did for me. Um, but that's the reality that we now enjoy. That's the reality the scriptures teach that we need to continue to preach to ourselves and return to because we still operate in the world of law and criminal justice. We still operate in a personal level in that old law mentality. Do this and you live, don't do it and you die. And I look at my life and I go, I'm not doing it. I'm gonna die. Um, and the cross of Christ comes and says, no, you're gonna live. Because he died and offered that life of infinite value that is more than sufficient to put out your sin. Um, and so that's what we want to continue to think about, this limited atonement, this definite atonement, Christ dying to take away the sins of his people, and we'll continue to think about that as we go on. Uh, let's close our time in prayer together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we are thankful for the glorious good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was willing to come into the world and not, account, not to count equality with you, a thing to be grasped, but was willing to become like us, taking on our humanity and becoming a servant, even humbling himself to the cruel and shameful death of the cross. We thank you that he suffered there, not just torments of body, but of soul as he suffered under your wrath, that he might receive the penalty for us and take it away forever, that he offers to us the, the value of his infinite life and the righteousness that he deserved and calls us only to believe that that gift is ours. Lord, how thankful we are for his life, for his death, for his resurrection. It testifies that the payment was made in full and acceptable to you. We thank you that our Lord reigns even now at your right hand and is coming again soon in glory. Not to deal with sins, for he's already done that, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. May we live and die in the joy of that confidence, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you. You're dismissed.